Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today is going to be a little bit of a throwback episode. We did some of these at the beginning of this show's life, uh, which is going to be a lot more introspective, I think, in nature, give you a little bit more context about who Brendan and I are as individuals, and specifically as it relates to game design. So the general idea behind this episode is to talk about game design processes. We'll get into uh, some of our experience doing game design and, and hopefully have a nice conversation. So Brendan, how does that strike you? How are you doing today? It sounds really good, and I'm very excited about this episode. I think that a lot of the topics that we cover on the show, Jake, we end up talking around design a lot, or we feel like we have design ideas. Uh, I think a lot of designers listen to the show and get inspiration from some of the things that we say and then apply them to how they think about games. But I think it's going to be fun to sort of take off our game critic hats and maybe put on our game designer hats. I want to find a different <laughs> word, but <I've>, <laughs> well, I thought of monocle, but then but, but I didn't want to, you know, we can't cross the, the felled monocle streams here. Our pocket squares. No, that's too, that's too fly. Our designer uh-huh. badges. No, I don't want a badge. Our designer coats. Jackets. Yep. Design jacket. Outerwear. Yep. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Outerwear. Okay. Okay. We gotta stay on track here. We're gonna talk about design. Can I say what's coming up? I'm really excited about it. Yeah, let's do the little bit of announcements and then we'll get into that conversation. So Jake had the opportunity to go to uh, as you know, Geekway to the West uh, a few weeks ago, a really big convention, and he reviewed 14 games on the show. One of the games he reviewed was Rift Force, a game that right afterwards came to Alpha on Board Game Arena. So Jake and I have been playing this game a ton. So we're going to cover that in an upcoming episode. Next week is probably, probably going to be a What We Talk About episode. TBD, Rift Force is coming. And then we'll probably cover Lost Cities, a Reiner Kinesia game. You heard it right. I've broken through Jake's uh, callous exterior, and now just Reiner Kinesia is pouring out of him, just like me. And I also have two quick announcements, or rather clarifications. Uh, The first, speaking of that episode where I covered 14 games, I reviewed very briefly the game Tavern Tales, and I indicated that I played it at two players and didn't think it worked well at two players. The designer of that game has reached out to us asking if I had played the two-player variant in the back of the rulebook, which I did not. So please disregard that. Uh, That was my mistake, uh, and I would love the opportunity to revisit that game played correctly at some point in the future. The other announcement or clarification was there was quite a bit of uh, questions, discussions about our last week's episode, Baron Park, about how, in fact, we were playing that game on Board Game Arena. If you navigate to Board Game Arena yourself, you may not have seen it there. Uh, It is in alpha, so Brendan and I had the opportunity to play it because we, although don't have alpha access ourselves, uh, some people in our Discord kindly invited us to games of Baron Park there, which then enabled us to be able to play it. So it will be coming to Board Game Arena soon for an open beta, Um, but if you want to play that on Board Game Arena now, hop over to the Decision Space Discord, uh, just put in the looking for games channel that you'd love to try out baron park and brendan and uh, or i or somebody else in the discord i'm sure will be pleased to invite you to a game and the same goes for rift force which we'll be covering next week or or the, thereafter. 
that's also in alpha now. So uh, you won't see it if you just go to Board Game Arena, but we have access to it. We'd be delighted to invite you to a game. So if you're interested in pre-planning that one, the Decision Space Discord is the place to do that. As always, we will include a link in the description of this podcast. Uh, And one more uh, just really quick announcement. I wanted to say thank you so much and read out a recent review of our podcast. Uh, So somebody heeded our call, and that person was W.L. Burke via Apple Podcasts, and they gave us a five-star review titled Top Quality Infotainment. Love it. The show provides a unique approach to breaking down games, providing keen insights and a new vocabulary for talking about games while being entertaining to listen to. One of the only podcasts I listen to with any regularity, had I a boombox, rest assured that I would be blasting it from there. Thank you so much, W.L. Burke, for this lovely review. We're so thrilled. Every one of these lines just makes me smile. I'm so glad that we you listen to us with regularity, and we're like in the exclusive club of W.L. Burke's life, where we are one of the only... The boombox line is great, right? I... I oh, thank you. It's a... It's a, it's a yeah. It's a great tier review. review. Um, and Reviewing reviews, you get five stars. That's right. <laughs> and if you would like for us to review your review live on this podcast, all you have to do is leave us a review and we'll be delighted to do so. Uh, okay. With all that out of the way, Brendan, what do you say we get right into our main topic for this week, which is board game design process? Let's do it. How are we kicking off, Jake? Well, longtime listeners might know some of the games you've worked on. We've talked about a bit in the past. But can you give me like a very short? Yeah. Like uh, we'll each give our design background. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Awesome. So as you mentioned, longtime listeners of the show might know. But for all of you who don't, I'm going to bring this as if it's totally new news. Um, So I have been designing board games basically all my life, but my published board games, uh, I have two published games that have come out recently. I have a two 2021 small box card games. Uh, Both of these are numbers on cards games, uh, that sort of flavor of classic feeling game, though they have modern twists. One of them is a game called Ramen Ramen, which came out in 2021 from Japanime Games, and it's now been published in English, French, Japanese, Korean and Chinese, Mandarin. Um, It is this neat game where you have three different bowls on the table and you're playing ingredient cards to these different bowls, trying to be the one who is, you're trying to improve the quality of the bowl, but you also want to be the one to finish it. So a lot of people said that it, I don't know. Okay, so that's one of the games. I'm not going to dally. And then there's Enchanted Plumes, which is a game published by Calliope Games, uh, who you might know best for Suro. And Enchanted Plumes is a plume building game where you are building magical peacocks on the table by arranging feather cards in 10 different colors and ranging in values from like one to six, seven, eight, or nine, depending on how many players you play in the game. And there's a lot of tension over how large of a peacock you want to go for versus how many peacocks you want to build and maybe, uh, tension around what colors you're going into to add to your birds and there's special rules that restrict what you can add and it's just a i would say a relaxing but interactive romp yeah and so and i've been designing trying to design games seriously uh with an eye on getting games published i think since around 20 gosh i lived in corvallis oregon when i designed my first game again so since 2014 or so awesome well Congratulations on getting those two games published. That's amazing. Uh, and I have played Enchanted Plumes and 
really, really think he did well on that. And I'm looking forward to the chance to play Ramen Ramen at some point. Hopefully uh, I'll see it in my friendly local game store soon. Definitely. Uh, So I don't have as extensive of a board game design uh, catalog as Brendan. I don't have any published designs, but I have dabbled in game design really since I came into the board gaming hobby in 2015. I think I played like two modern board games and was like, yep, I get this. Time for me to design my masterpiece, which I think is (laughs) a pretty typical experience uh, for, for people coming into the board game hobby and especially people who are like, you know, like me tend to just dive headfirst into any new passion or pursuit. Uh, it does feel like the next logical thing once you've played a few games to, to try your hand at it. So the game I worked on first was a kickball game, which is my other like one of my other really big passions uh, is playing competitive kickball. Uh, don't know that there's any kickball board games out there. So I thought this would be my niche. And that's sort of been a game that I have been designing. I think I'm on like the fourth or fifth version of and I've just been fiddling with it over the years. I would get to a playable version and then I'd say like, this isn't what I want to be and kind of like rebuild from the ground up using what I've learned. So that's still in a playable prototype. And I think I'm about to, the next time I revisit it, tear it down and build it back up again in a completely (laughs) new way. So there's that. Uh, I also participated one year in the nine card print and play challenge on board game geek so this is the only design i have out there that you could theoretically play and i designed a game called boarding group which is about loading passengers onto a passenger airplane uh it's a dice drafting and manipulation game uh, where you'd roll dice in three different colors uh representing different passenger groups and then you place them on the plane trying to get the best seats for your group of passengers essentially so like a window seat or an aisle seat is better than a middle seat uh and there's a lot of different rules with how the dice uh manipulations like represent different things that could give you more or less uh negative points um so that is a v- very much, I think, a functional game. Some people played on there and indicated as much. I don't know that it's a fun game or one that I would uh, recommend you spend a ton of time and energy seeking out, but it's up there, Boarding Group. Uh, if you're interested in trying it, I can send you a link to that. Uh, and then most recently, I also designed <laughs> I designed a, uh, I tried to take the dexterity game Beer Pong and turn that into a strategy game so taking a dexterity game turning into a strategy game i guess is a motif of mine uh so i also have a playable prototype of that it's like a real-time card laying game kind of neat kind of fun uh it, it works and then lastly and most recently i designed a couple of expansion promo realms for uh stonemeyer games rolling realms i don't know what i can say about this So I will just leave it at that. But I do think they will be getting published at some point in the future. Uh, So that will be another opportunity to try out one of my designs. And obviously, I'm really thrilled. That'll be my first like produced game thing. And I'm super excited to play those realms when they come out. I'm very, very excited. Obviously, it's, it's really cool seeing something that you designed become physically printed on paper. But... 
that's not to say that all of your previous designs don't exist and are like awesome, valid things too, right? Like it's still super cool. Both are really cool things, I guess is what I'm getting at, you know? It's so awesome. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of a nice segue into our uh, design process conversation because like I think for all of the games that I've worked on, uh, they have like such different starting points mm. in the process, right? Like something like, designing a promo for an existing game is such a specific and narrow thing compared to being like i love kickball what would a kickball board game be like yeah i feel like what you're saying also what's interesting though jake with that so i feel like what you're getting at is there's systems design where you're thinking about a game and the systems that will exist and then there's That's one really specific type of design work, right? Like if I'm going to build a game, what system should they be in it and how should they interact? So in designing realms for rolling realms, you're taking core systems and you're using those systems to then design cards that interact with it. So that's a, you're doing the creative part of the design process where like you're not designing the environment, but you're designing the object that goes in the environment. And in some ways, a kickball board game fits into that in a similar way because you have presupposed systems but you're doing this translation process this adaption process kind of like taking a a book and making a film where you're like this can't be the exact same thing because i would just go play kickball if that's the case so i want to capture the essence of kickball but with enough rules that they're informing so you're like taking some of the systems but you're like ooh, which systems do i break in half and make board gamey um and then obviously there's so I don't know. That's just like where, where my head went to straight away from hearing what you're saying. I, th- I think that's really insightful. And I think I just personally, in my experience, have found system design, as you put it, really hard. And then doing the realm design sure. way easier. Um, yeah. You know, as soon as I kind of found out about potentially this opportunity, I like was on a flight and I just came up with like seven different realm you know, that I thought would work great based on, you know, on a flight on two hours just in my notebook, because I was like, okay, I know what these games are. I know what the systems of rolling realm is and being able to just like translate one to the other for whatever reason uh, came just really fast to me. Whereas what you're saying, like anytime, like, Oh, I want to like design a cool game. as just like a blank slate. It's like, so incredibly daunting one thing that's so daunting about that too is i feel like obviously designs an iterative process where playtesting becomes is vital and i think so much of design skill is understanding how the changes that you want to make are going to impact the system that exists but on new designs it can be really hard to know how the systems are going to interact at all or at best right to see problems that could arise before they even come up and design in a different direction which is a long-winded way sorry always long-winded of saying having good design instincts um and i think that for me with designing enchanted plumes and ramen ramen those games started systems first and a lot of my games since then i mean on some level all games have to start systems first but i think that since then i've sort of tried different ways of like i'm going to start with a really simple system and see how all these game objects interact and then i'll go back and fix the system when i see what i want the game to feel like which i don't recommend that way it's a way longer process. Yeah. I, I mean, so when you talk about the game design process, right, I think generally to us lay people, which I'm considering myself and I'm considering you the expert in this conversation. <laughs> okay, great. There could be two possible ways to start, which would be theme first or mm. mechanisms first. 
right? Like I like I want to design a game about kickball. Sure. You know, that is starting with the theme versus like yeah, right. What I think you're talking about for system design with enchanted plumes. So it I mean, does that fit with and I've seen it discussed that way before online in forums and stuff. Does that sort of fit with your understanding of where you're starting at with when you design a game? It does to some extent, but I think I would push people to break past that paradigm because I think that good games are a concert, a marriage of both of those two things, right? So like the best systems are the best systems because they're married strongly to at least a thematic hook or a thematic idea, if not a strong theme and vice versa. Though sometimes that's just not going to be the case for sure in some games. So I guess, yes, like in the most base way, totally. Though I try my best not to think of it like I want to design X game or I want to design with X mechanic, which is kind of an impossible puzzle for sure. But I would say like in the case of Enchanted Plumes, weirdly, the idea came together at the same time. Like it wasn't theme or mechanic first. It wasn't peacock plumage first and it wasn't card rows in the shape of a plume first. It was both somehow at the same time or within like the ideas informed each other strongly enough that the game couldn't have existed in a playable form without either of those things existing first, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like what came first, the peacock or the egg? Yeah. Both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> both. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just another question that kind of came to me as I was thinking about it is, so you're a published designer and I gather that you want to continue to have more games published in the future. So when you're coming up with games now, yeah, uh, and, and you're not a, you haven't done Kickstarter, you haven't self-published in the past. At what point are you thinking, I think this game would fit with this publisher? And like, at what point in the design process does that start informing your decisions? Mm. That's a really interesting question. So with both Ramen Ramen and Enchanted Plumes, that wasn't on my mind at all almost. But I think that's because both those games are so much of a specific type of game, like they're small box card games. So it's easy enough to like find a specific publisher. But I think the more niche a game becomes, the earlier you have to think about who who am I going to go to with this game if you want to go through finding a traditional publisher, right? So another game that I'm working on, Jake, I would say I worked on the game for... A really long, like a, a lot, like a full, in some ways, the game as it exists now feels like a sequel to the first game that I designed in some ways. Like that's how much iterative process it's gone on. But what got it to go from that first design to this new one that feels fresh is thinking who's going to actually publish this game and what would those publishers want out of a game that they would publish that looked like this. And then thinking about why they'd want those things and figuring out how those qualities could make the game better. Better. So in this game specifically, it meant making a game that I felt was really compelling into a product that I felt would be a really compelling pitch. And it's yeah. it's too soon to tell if it will be successful. <laughs> but so far, it's at least piqued the interest of the people that I was hoping that would work in that instance. So I think the answer is once you're really excited about the game, you have to then think about how you're going to excite other people. Right. And in some cases, it doesn't, the, the pitch is obvious and in others it won't be. But I think as early as possible, it's good, right? Like if you want someone to publish it, you should think about who you want to publish it. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation because on one hand, you could, I can see somebody listening to this podcast thinking to themselves like, that doesn't strike me as right, you know, letting mm. sort of like this, capitalist system right of needing yeah, to find yeah. somebody to publish it like interfere with 
the art of designing a game and, you know, seeing these decisions as concessions in some way. But as I hear you say that, and as I think about my own very limited experience designing games, I think I want as many sort of constraints as possible early on because I've found the most like creative success when I'm really restrained. Right. And I think a lot of times like the art can come out of the the restraints you're working under, whether that's designing for a very specific system that already exists or when I did the nine card print and play challenge. Right. And and having that Hmm. limitation of like, okay, there can only be nine cards and 18 components in this game. And I don't you know, I don't know that I could have created the game I did. Not that it is amazing by any means without, you know, those constraints like leading me down this path. Yeah, 100%. I feel like, too, I think your point of, like, it feeling grossly pragmatic is really fair. But I also feel like two things. Um, One of them being there's only one best designer in the world. So everyone else in the world functionally is not the best. So we should learn from the lessons that everyone who's ever designed a board game, if that's what we want to do, have, like, learn from the things they've done before us, right? And looking at published games and seeing why certain things are done certain ways is just fundamentally really helpful. And seeing why publishers publish certain types of games is really helpful if you want people to buy your game and to potentially pitch it. And then I think the follow-up to that, Jake, is that I've realized there's a even more pragmatic answer than the one that I gave before, which is at the very beginning, at the very least, if you want your, your design to become a physical object and you're hoping to get it published, you should be thinking about the cost of publishing it, right? Like if you design a really cool game with 700 dice in it, someone might say, this is the best game I've ever seen, but it has 700 dice in it. Like I can't publish it or even 45 dice, like dice are an expensive component that's going to increase the cost of your design and make it harder to find publishers. And there's probably some amazing designs with 45 dice in them, right? But it's something to consider. Does my design need 45 dice? Does my, right? And they better be D6s. Unless you're like, <laughs> um, if you're, with just the and, standard pips, right? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're Tom Lehman and you can do dice realms and convince people, but right, there's only one Tom Lehman. So I think, and another sort of realm of this is, I'm going to keep going back to that example that I'm not specifying what it is. And maybe one day on this podcast, we'll get to talk about this design, but it's on my head a lot because I've been working on it a ton since I've started having a little more free time since our son was born. And one of the changes that I made was when I first did that design, I was just really liberal with like the number of cards in the game. Like, Whatever I think the design needs, I'm just going to put in there. We'll figure it out and I'll solve the problem of, oh, I made too many cards after the fact. But then when I went back, I thought more about printing sheets because every card game ever printed is printed on sheets of cards. And it's really advantageous to sort of stay within those print limits for the size of cards on a sheet. So sheets vary in size, but usually if you're like under 108 cards, you're on two sheets and that's a great number to be at, right? Because if you go over a sheet, then the printer, your has to print maybe if you are five cards over, then they have two sheets full of cards and one car- sheet with just five cards, which feels like a really big waste. And I think it's another way to sort of set yourself as a, a part as a designer and say, I'm thinking about these things that shows to the publisher when you're pitching the game that you are thinking about the whole span of things, which gives them com- confidence, you know? For sure. Yeah. And I, I can imagine that's especially important as someone without name recognition in the industry right like if you're just some person off the street saying i'd really like to pitch you this game yep yeah i mean just showing that you've done your research to a very fundamental degree i'm sure gives you an enormous leg up over totally uh the enormous 
number of pitches of people that like me just thought i'm just gonna dive in with both feet and i have this great idea for this game yeah definitely which i think we've sort of all seen what some of those pitches look like if you're you know someone who even just casually browses crowdfunding sites or uh you know facebook groups or reddit page you know that type of thing like you see these people who are ambitious and driven and excited about their game design and i i will have the kind of thoughts like okay this person needs to i think like play more games Mm, (laughs) and like experience more in this (laughs) hobby before they're ready to you know really get a project published and obviously this is general generalities i'm not trying to say like gatekeep anybody and say you have to play 100 modern board games before you should start designing a game like i don't think that's true at all i just think it can be pretty obvious to even someone as inexperienced in design as me if something doesn't have enough time sort of in the oven or or whatever does that make sense to you or am i just sounding like a complete jerk no you it totally makes sense i think we're slightly off topic now but i feel like (laughs) what you're saying is is very valid and i think that there's this idea that a lot of like people who want to design games might have and i've made all the mistakes so my head's been in this space before too which is that oh i don't want to play too many games because i don't want to design games like other people and if i play too many games my games will be like other people's games and I feel like at this point, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Like if you want to design original games, you have to know what mechanisms are popular. You have to know what people are doing. If you want to do something that feels fresh, you have to know what's not fresh, right? And a lot of people make the mistake of like, oh, I just won't, I won't go there. It's like, no, wrong, go there. So you can know where where you want to go differently and why. It has to be and why, right? Like originality for originality's sake is, is worthless. Totally not useful, right? Like who cares? A good game executed well is what people want. People don't want an original game. They want a really well executed, really awesome game. And if that happens to be original, then it's like a bonus, right? Right. Maybe. Also, like what if it's a really amazing deck building game that no one had ever thought of to design a game in that way? Even greater, right? Like people get, I think in design world, people get really into this idea of like it's original and that has intrinsic value. And I don't think it does good executed well does we could probably design an original mechanic right now that yeah would have totally. zero value <laughs> yeah i was just thinking like okay this game has has a timer that you have to like pause to go collect something in the real world and then yeah, yeah. come back to the table at different points like cool i just invented a brand new mechanic uh, <laughs> called go fetch <laughs> yeah right, right, right yeah <laughs> and that probably does not have you buzzed to try my fetching game yeah I think, can I jump in really quickly with something too, Jake, that I feel like is so essential to design process? Yeah. Number please. one thing, in my mind, the thing that's helped me the most, because I've, again, I've made all the mistakes, right? I've created, I spent 30 hours on a prototype that I haven't played. Biggest mistake in the world. For me now, the most number one, most important thing is just like play the idea. And it doesn't have to be a fully formed game. It can be part of a system, right? If you're starting with that systems design, mess with the system and don't even make anything. Just find stuff that you could use to simulate the idea of the system. Go to your game collection and pull out pieces and mess with physical objects on a table and see how it works, right? So like Enchanted Plumes, I played a prototype without having made a prototype of that game just by grabbing pieces from other stuff to see what it would feel like. And I think that that's the quickest way to filter through what feels good, what's going in the right direction and what's not. And it saves you the trouble of building up ideas that you get really excited about 
and then don't work. Yeah, no, yeah. I, th- I think that's great advice and definitely something I've seen echoed. I think it might have been Paul, friend of the show, Paul Solomon, who sort of said, like, you have to, like, design the bad version of your game three times before yeah. you can get to anything valuable. And, like, the you know, the most important part of game design, this might have been someone in our Discord, uh, maybe it was also Paul again, but it's like, it's like getting, like, your shitty first draft done. yeah. Um, because it's it's not going to be great your first time, you know? And I think that is like maybe a part where I've struggled is like designing the game, getting my kickball game to the table, getting someone to play it. And I'm just like, Oh, like it's not fun. And so now I'm just like starting over. (laughs) Totally. I feel like the other big thing is not being afraid to just play by yourself, which, yeah. But I think that as you and I both, I'm sure had this experience, which is like, when I was an 11 year old and I wanted to play magic the gathering and no one was around, I would just play by myself. So I think that I'm more comfortable in that space of like, I need to play test my games before other people play test them. Even if it's a compromised version, just to make sure I am understanding and can teach. And I've thrown out a lot of games before anyone, but me has played them like literally anyone, but me, you know, not even Maya, yeah. who would play anything that I put in front of her if I asked, but I, it's a better use of my time to just like play it and see. Yeah. And not even care about the score or anything, right? Like just does this, does the flow of this physical thing work is really, right. really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, oh, that's, I think that brings up another interesting question about if in my mind about processes, like when do you bring in play testing to the game? Because yeah. at least for me, I will, would never put something in front of someone just, and maybe this is wrong, but just because of like my own, uh, like shame and embarrassment like if it wasn't at least playable like I had to know yeah. like this could be something that is capable of being played it might not be fun at all but like at least like it is a game that has rules that you know make sense definitely yeah no for sure I completely agree with that Jake I think that any game that you put in front of someone has to be a game like you should right. have an objective you should have rules in your head that are discrete for that play test so that players can play the game right like it feels bad to sit down at a play test and be like someone be like i think that you're going to do this on your turn and i think that you want to do this like for the sake of this play test tell me what i am trying to do and how i'm going to do it and that might not be the way that the game is but i think it, what you're getting at is like sometimes you get nervous about committing to saying this game is this or this game is that and it's okay it's a play test like right. in this instance this game is this and if this doesn't go well, maybe it will be that. But I've definitely sat down to play test and someone has been like, I don't know what the objective is. And it's like, I don't know how to make decisions then. Yeah. Um, and But it doesn't have to be a good game. And also, I think the other thing is when you play test, it doesn't have to be a play test of the whole game, right? Like I've definitely sat down with people at games that I've tried to design that were longer games and sort of said, we're going to start this game on what would be turn five of this game. Here's your stuff. Here's my stuff. Here's this person's stuff. Here's what the board looks like. Let's play three turns yeah. and, and then played three turns, got what I needed out of the play test, went back and thought about how to change the game. And like, you can do a little bit of that till you're like, okay, I am happy enough with how this is working that I think it's a good use of everyone's time to try to play a longer game. Right. Right. You yeah. Test parts of a system. And that's good too. That's valuable. It depends who you are. Like yeah. if, if, if you're, I don't know, a big board game publisher, uh, or a famous designer, um, 
there probably are a lot of people that would jump at the opportunity to play a test play, you know, the new Uwe Rosenberg game or Steffenfeld game uh, just to be able to say like, hey, I tried this game in its initial phases and that already has a lot of value in it. Um, But I think, you know, if I'm bringing a game to my friends, (laughs) you know, like I want their... I don't, you know, I want to, I'm just so sensitive to, and maybe too sensitive to like wasting everybody's mm. time. And I think that maybe is a mistake I've made in the past too, of being like, here's the game. And then, you know, we play a turn and it's already apparent to me, like, this isn't great. And, yeah. but like, you know, I'm for whatever, you know, we'll still play like the whole thing in an yeah. hour or whatever, uh, when it was already apparent to me. So probably, you know, just like we've talked so much about the magic circle, in playing games with your friends it's probably a good idea in a play test situation like that to sort of set up ground rules ahead of time such as like i reserve the right to just call this off you know to save all of our time and like you do too yeah totally 100 percent and I think also having an idea of like what you're hoping to get out of the playtest too, right? Yeah. Because then the objective isn't like this game plays awesome on the table because that's a pretty tall, uh, a tall order for a brand new game. So it's sort of like I'm hoping to learn X in this playtest, and when you learn it, then you can just stop, right? Like, right. Yeah. Like, does this game have good flow? And you do a couple of turns, you're like, no, it does no. not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it didn't for these reasons. I'm going to go fix them. Maybe you'd be willing to play test with me again sometime. Totally. I'll also say a lot of... So my design process for a long time was that I went to a local design group. And that's a really different, to your point, Magic Circle, because everyone's bringing their own designs. So you are acutely aware that when your game's on the table, other people's aren't. So you want to be respectful of everyone's time. You want people to want to play your game. So you want to be respectful of everyone else's time. And I think that that environment that I was in, there was this really healthy, like, this play test is done. Like, I have what I need out of it. Let's move on. And sometimes that was playing a whole game. But to, to your point, sometimes games would get scooped. It's like, no, let's move on. I want to save my time for next week. I've learned everything I need to learn here. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. And yeah, and I think too, like I've I've played tested a few games uh, in, in a variety of settings and never have I been like, that was a, an, a, like the best, most fun play experience that we could have had, right? Yeah. Like in any of those instances, playing like an already playtested and developed and published game is probably going to be a more like just fun board gaming experience than playtesting. So I think that's just also just like worth thinking about like going into it, whether you're the person showing off the game or a person playtesting the game that it's like, it really is like a different expectation set. Have you found your plate? So obviously it's like the most common and quoted like knowledge in game design is like play test your games, just keep play testing them, play test them so much, do blind play tests, blah, blah, blah. Have you actually found that to be true in your experience or is that just a lot of hype? I think it's totally true, but it really depends on the game, right? Yeah. Because it's a really huge spectrum where I think that to play test your game until you understand it like the back of your hand is the real saying in my mind, right? Like, because some games, if they're more complex, are going to take more playtesting, and other games you're going to get a sense for it way sooner. Like, I playtested the crap out of Enchanted Plumes, but I think that a lot of that was me learning how to design games again and think through the iterative design process. And a lot of what we were playtesting is just the published game. 
right? Like the the second probably 200 playtests were probably like, this is the game as it is published. But I wanted to make sure it was solid and was good. And I was getting in front of new people and seeing how they were reacting to it. Um, and nothing needed changed. Another game that I have, I'm still playtesting it all the time. I'm still thinking about it all the time. We're changing things all the time. So in that sense, right, like, I feel like for a lot of games, the published version ends up being playtested probably less than all the versions that were ever playtested, but it's because you got to the version that needed to exist, if right. that makes sense. But I do think playtesting is like really, really, really important. Yeah. I think there's very few games like The Mind where you can just go, okay, I designed this game. Okay, it's great. Okay, we playtested it. It's amazing. Other people should play it now, right? Yeah. Like I, I know that there were things that were tweaked in The Mind, but there's so few knobs to tweak that... I'm sure it wasn't play tested as much as say, I don't know, Tigris and Euphrates. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting paradigm that yeah. plays out probably, which is that like the more complex your game is, the more play testing it probably needs and the less play testing it probably gets. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other important thing too, is just playing with different people. And I think that functionally that can be difficult just in terms of life. Um, oftentimes your playtest group is your playtest group and it's tough to find new people to playtest with, but fresh eyes on any piece of art are always helpful and even more helpful when the art has math in it, which most games do because people will play totally differently than you'd ever imagine. Right. Um, and that's really important to see someone play differently. That's like the, the obvious part of playtesting, but I feel like we had to say that and something that I can be guilty of sometimes it's like we played this game with the same group of people 30 times. Great. That's kind of the same playtest, you know? I'm not against playtesting games, but I just, and this is pure speculation, but I imagine that the vast majority of playtests are like very flawed hmm. <laughs> um, because of what you're saying. And like, because of the familiarity with the designer, you know, like I, I think two things probably happen. And part of this comes came out of a conversation I had with Paul recently which is like that a lot of playtesting notes that are given yeah bring up a like kind of like defensiveness about mm. uh the uh, from from a designer at times right like okay like this is the challenge i had with it and it's like oh well that's here because of like x y and z and sure. it's like well like, i'm just giving you design yeah. notes like yeah. take them or leave them yep um, and i think that is like the most natural thing in the world uh, I haven't been in uh, board game play test setting very much, but I did a minor in creative writing in mm. undergrad. And so a lot of experience with like writing a short story and putting it on the table in front of peers and reacting to people's short stories. And I, I, I felt like that was just like, it almost felt totally pointless a lot of time because the person authoring the story myself or otherwise was just like, thanks for your feedback, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah. I think, and I think that happens. And I also think like, do people like if you're testing with your friends and family, which have to be the most common people you'd be testing with, or even, you know, you're in a public play testing group, they become your friends. They're like your friends too. Yeah. Or like, there's such a strong like magic circle. Like, are you, are people really giving their honest feedback and notes? Yeah. I just have a hard time believing that. I don't know. Which I think becomes the, your your job in a play test, I think, at least what I view my job is, is not to get affirmative feedback from other people, right? Like right. for this exact reason, like I'm not going to play test the game with my mom and be like, do you like it? 
Because right. the answer is going to be yes. Uh, right. It's going to be, this is the best game I've ever played in my life. Um, and it's not helpful to hear. So I think my job and what I've realized through playtesting is not like I'm not going... At first, I was like taking a game that I'd made and been like, do people in the world like this? To your point, like when I first went to that design group and it was like, oh, people are willing to play this. That's really cool. But I think that once you get past that milestone, it's like, do I like how this game is playing? Is the game broken? Is the game working well? Are there interesting decisions here? Do I want to play this the second I stop playing it? And do I think about wanting when I'm next going to get to play it? Great. I'm moving in the right direction. And I think that the more I've designed, the more I've realized the best that I can do is just design a game that I think really works really well, that I really love, and that at least one person is excited enough that they're willing to publish it. And then like, that's all I can do. Like, right. I, I, I'm not looking for a playtest where everyone likes it because games are about taste too, right? Like you're functionally, you would never like host a dinner party and bring everyone in the kitchen to sample and say, is this good for you? Is this good for you? Is it because right. you would ruin the dish because this person wants more salt. This person doesn't understand why you're making whatever dish you made. They want, they wanted a salad. And like, right. They're like, this is not salad. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> you're like, I know it's like the turkey. Yeah. But, but some of the feedback that you're talking about is you'll uh, play a great game example. with someone and they'll be like, this isn't salad and I want salad. And you're yeah. like, I thank you for your feedback. Like it's right. right. It's not salad. I'm sorry. Thank you for play testing it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's okay. I love hearing playtest feedback, but I even more love watching people's faces while they're playing. I also think, though, there's this like um, there's this saying that goes around this like axiom that like if people look at their phones during playtests, it's a good good sign that the playtest is going poorly, which I don't think is true. I think that there's lots of amazing games where sometimes people look at their phones during playing the game and that's okay. Like, I don't know. I've played board games that I think are incredible games and sometimes people look at their phones and I don't think it's damning to the copy of. I don't know, whatever game yeah. it was. I think it's just like... I get where that sentiment's coming from, right? For sure. It's like shorthand for like, okay, this is not engaging. Yeah, if you're not engaging your players, yeah. for sure. It's definitely something I've noticed when playing games with... It's something I look for if I'm like teaching a game or showing a game to friends. Uh, and not necessarily like, oh, somebody like glances down at their phone every once in a while when it's not their turn. But if they're but sitting there... But there can be like a pervasive sense of like, yeah. people are on their phone which this is game then, is not going well. Then maybe it's a good sign that your turns are too long, right? So it's like, right. what can I do to get my turns down? And, or maybe too much is changing between turns in, in a way that someone has to wait for their turn to start. Like that game that you mentioned, I think it's, yeah, a, that, it's a flag, yeah. but like if three not a, people are on their phone yeah. out of four, it's yeah, probably yeah. a problem. Exactly. It's yeah. a flag, but not a death knell. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So we've talked about play testing a lot, which is obviously yeah. an integral part of the, design process Um, we've talked about sort of originating yeah ideas a little bit i think too like so you've talked a little bit to me offline about how you have like so many ideas for games like in your head all the time yeah and i feel like not that's that's certainly not me you know Mm. i'll have like one thing yeah at a time max and I, i think i'm probably spending just less time in general doing this because it's something i'm still doing like really casually if at all like you know maybe i'll sit down and do some game design and if i do it's like frantic activity of like i'll spend like you know 12 hours in a weekend and or and then i'll do nothing for like two weeks i'm kind of curious like what does how does game design fit into your Mm. daily life right now yeah that's a really good question i so i'm also in grad school we do the podcast 
I'm in grad school. We have a baby. So I'm very busy. But I think that it's become clear to me that designing games is just something that I love doing. And something to your point that I'm kind of constantly always doing, like if I'm not trying to design games, I just have ideas for them because it's what my brain likes to do when it's idle. And I think everyone has that thing where their brain likes to do something while it's idle. Um, Maybe not. But I, I feel like to some extent, <laughs> that's just you, people. dude. That's so weird. I've never heard that before in my life. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so I have found ways to make it work. Like I, in terms of design, I think what type of game I'm working on right now is a game that works really well for being able to do like little pieces here and there. I also do a lot of design work um, in between in like set aside time. I do a lot of designing in my notes app of my phone. And right now we're doing... I'm doing a lot of iterative design on this game that I was talking about earlier. So it's not making new things right now. It's trying to sharpen, refine and like hone the previous game. Um, but for now it's mostly like I've been playtesting games once a week and I've been, and then it, after those playtests, basically iterating by going back and redesigning the file. I also have built up a lot of tools that make it way easier. I think if I was starting to design games right now, it would be way too hard but it's easier for me to like, I know my process, right? Like I have a spreadsheet. I can data merge my spreadsheet into this template that I created to make cards really quickly. So I can make 165 cards like really fast. I I know how to get things into tabletop similar. I don't know. Is this helpful at all? I don't have as much time as I wish I did, but basically like if I'm on a run, I'm designing in my brain. If I'm falling asleep, I'm probably thinking about game design. Okay, let's talk about falling asleep and thinking about game design because yeah. this is something I've wanted to get off my chest for a while, Okay, which is like I found what I think is like the perfect way to get to sleep at night. Okay. And it's like thinking about designing a game. Like yeah. if I'm like, if I'm like trying to like think about a game design that I work on in the back of my head, like if I'm having trouble falling asleep for whatever reason, which I, I'm normally very fast to fall asleep. And I think part of that is because I found this genius, perfect method to get to sleep like right away, which is like start working on my game in my brain. And then I'm like out instantly. Yeah. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, same. So it's not really it's not really productive for designing games, but it's super productive for getting a healthy night of sleep. It's really cathartic and relaxing, especially when you get to the point where you're like trying to play the idea in your head and what it would feel. Yeah, yeah. I do the exact same thing. That's so funny that you do that as well. That's I wild. It. I wonder yeah, if other people do that great. too. Let us know if you are. It's a... like the mental like bandwidth, right? Yeah. It's like you're just like think about this. It's like you're. It's like it's like my form of meditation. Yeah, exactly. It's like a neural massage meditation. It's great. Can I? Can we talk about? Okay, so you mentioned having tons of how I have too many ideas. Yeah. So and I have not enough. Well, you're. I don't know. Every amount of ideas is probably valid. You're like, right. I have yeah, one yeah. brilliant idea. There you go. At a time, which is making a non-dexterity version of beer pong brilliant <laughs> i'm really intrigued by this idea you hadn't told me about it i want to see it uh, um, I, i'll post a picture of it you on, in our discord okay please do my I friend feel... made me 3d printed red solo cups <laughs> oh my god amazing wait so it's yeah. actually beer pong well it's not like it's like the tabletop version of it yeah, yeah. which i guess tv pong is a tabletop game but it's like board <laughs> game size okay post a picture of it i'm really intrigued yeah like basically shot glasses yeah size 3d printed that's awesome red solo cups adorable okay my what i want to talk about was i think it links the podcast together with design which is how do you think how how do we think about what we should work on right mm -hmm. so that's like having one idea you could get more ideas if you wanted you could spend you could come up with creative tricks to like come up with new ideas a bit 
And I feel like that's one of the hardest things about design, right? Like with a finite amount of time in life, in your free time, in your your time that you have that your brain is willing to think about games, whatever it is, how do you decide what you should put your efforts to? And I think that's the hardest thing about design for me right now is figuring out where I should put my energy. And I think lately that's just been putting it in the games that I want to play the most. And I think that that's a good guide. Like if I'm excited to play it, other people are going to be too. But I think that there's going to be times where it's going to be really hard to find people to publish those games. There's going to be a really limited people of crew of publishers who might publish them. And if they say no, that's kind of the end. And it wasn't a waste because I've learned a ton, but I've reached the end of the road for that game. And then I'll pick up a new project. I think yeah. that's the hard part of the design process for me is figuring out where I should spend my time and what what I should spend my time doing. It probably is good in that instance to know what your objective is yeah, and work back from that because yeah. you're trying to publish, get more game designs published, right? Um, which is going to have you order things in importance differently than somebody who's going to, I don't know, self-publish on Kickstarter. Sure. Or I just want to create the you know super niche thing that only i and my partner care about and we're just gonna play this together yeah yeah totally what's interesting is i feel like i've taken a middle road with the project i'm working on most currently where it's like i did the thing that you were talking about earlier where it's like i'm just making the thing that i want to make with a little bit of like how do i get this published and now i've pivoted so i guess we'll see if I should just keep doing it this way or if I should go back to like, I'm going to try to design a more traditional game in a more traditional board game space because I know that the publishing appetite in the world is there for it. And I have a, a new, a newly refined brain for games, having like done the podcast and design games right. and apply myself to those again. Like I have yeah. ideas there, but like, I don't want to make the prototypes right now. I just want right. to work on this other thing. Yeah. yeah. I do think that the kind of doing the podcast has helped me I don't know, become a better game designer, but at least like have more language to think about what I'm designing, right? Like being able to be intentional about the type of decision space that you want to create is definitely not something that I would have ever thought about before in my designs. And now I have access to that. I think that without having done the podcast, Jake, I don't think I would have been able to take the game that I'm working on most right now and redesign it to be a better product. Which is a better right. game. Those are the same thing. Well, I, I think yeah. the way I'm using, I think that they, I hear what you're going to say, but I do think they are the same thing. And that I think that it's a better product because it's a better game and it's a better game because maybe not in all instances. Yeah. Well, I was going to push case, back. Yeah. I was just going to push back on like the, what you said earlier about, you know, m- making the best game because I don't, I don't think there is right a best to, game. to your point, yeah. right? Like about sure. being the best designer, right? There's no objective truth, like different. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. One game is going to be the best game to one publisher, to one yeah. player, to yeah. one group and a different design decision will be the best game for another set of people. And totally. it's just knowing what you're going after and being intentional about that. Totally. And then having, I, okay. With that extent, the podcast has been such a boon, especially in talking about objectives, right? Like our overlaid objectives uh, or our, our whole framework of, of objectives, I feel like has really changed the way that I think about designing even specific cards and specific strategies and what those look like and how they connect to each other. I feel like that was such a, a paradigm and breakthrough. I think it's also just made me appreciate like how important teachability is. Right. We, we learn a lot of games and it's hard learning 
games that aren't easy to learn. Um, I don't know. There's ways in which you can structure the rules of a game that you make a complex idea approachable that I've come to appreciate the more that we've designed. And I think that this might just be the, the type of games that I like and the designer I want to be. But there's this rule in Babylonia, Jake, where uh, cities score. And cities score, every time anyone scores a city, every player at the table scores one point for every city they already have. Great. Simple rule. I just taught it to you. Another way to write this rule is every city that scores is worth the number of points that there are cities still on the table unless the game ends early and then you minus the number of cities that are still on the table from that. Like those are the exact same rule in Babylonia's case, but the first rule is way better. But you might think of the second rule first and need to figure out how to get it to the first rule. I know that was circuitous, but does that make sense? What I'm gathering from that is that like there are that rule books are important and it should be also part of your design process as well. And I think that's something you really can't appreciate until you sit down and write out the rules that you have in your head. And that was something I definitely learned in when I was doing that nine card boarding group thing, because that game has like basically one through six represents like different ages, like a one is the passenger is a baby. And so like you get negative points if you're sitting in a row with a baby, because that's like a cry, you know, the baby might cry. And so you get like negative three points if one of your dice is colored is sitting next to the baby and like the number two dice is like a toddler so they give like they're like kicking the seat and give negative two points to the you know seat directly ahead of them Mm -hmm. and like and there's all that and then overlaid atop that is like point value with the like where in the plane you are you get more points in the front less in the back and just like trying to write all those things that individually seem so clear and simple to me in my head as i was designing the game into like putting them into like simple sentence structures without writing like paragraphs about this simple idea was like an unbelievable challenge. And I'm, uh, you know, uh, you, well, I, I'm in a new role now, but I, at the time I was like, I'm a professional grant writer. Like I write technical information in simplistic terms as a profession. And like, I am just struggling immensely to accomplish this simple idea. Yeah, big, big challenge. I think that also, Jake, one, let's take it even a step further and say like the thing that you're trying to get someone to publish is your rule book. Like, right. because you don't get to pick the art on the cards. You don't get to pick what the board looks like. You don't even maybe get to pick the size of the components. You maybe don't even get to pick the theme. Hopefully right. you have the input, right? You had an idea coming in. You get to publish a rule book. Like that's what you're selling to someone. So when you're designing a game, what you're really designing is the rules that someone has to teach to their friends. And I think that so much, the more that I've designed games, the more I've been trying to think about my game existing in that space of like, how how does someone take this and teach it to other people? Yeah. And what will that experience be like? Because that helps decide how much they're going to like it. Um, yeah, totally. No, and that was that was my Kinesia point. Like there's ways in which to teach your rules, which is what writing a rule book is. It's like, that's your job to, to make it intuitive and there's ways to make it complex. And your job is to figure out, even if you have a complex rule, to make it intuitive. And you have to use theme or you have to use clever like clever writing uh clever explanation whatever you can do just has to be approachable if it's not like it's just ugh. so what when did you when you write your published design write your rules yeah like in because you know i imagine when you're grabbing components and seeing something works that's all in your head at that point. totally and okay so some people have a really like 
I know that for a lot of people, they have rule books that are running throughout and they're updating them. And that's part of their like iteration ritual is tweaking the rule book. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing, but I don't have time to do that necessarily. So I, once I'm ready to p- pitch the game to someone, I need to have a rule book that if they say, can I see the rule book, right? That they can reference it. Or if I want them to take the prototype that I pitched them home and play the game more, I want them to have a rule book to reference. So basically, once I think the game is almost done, I'll do that. Or if I've designed a game and I'm not sure if the complexity is right, the right weight for what I want it to be, I'll try to write a rule book and see what how complex the game is and see what areas I can cut. So the game that I've been iter- iterating on, Jake, I did it backwards. I pitched the game and then the pitch went well. So then I wrote a rule book. So that's another way, but I didn't love that process because it was like, oh, we need a rule book. I gotta, I gotta do this, um, yeah. which is fine. <laughs> but I think I it teaches you about the game writing a rule book too. So like, I like that as an important milestone of reflection, sometimes in the design process too, being like, I like this game. I want to invest my time in this game. That's a big one. Don't write a rule book if you're not ready to like show it to people, uh, but then write the rule book and then see what you can adjust. I don't know. Yeah. Did you find yourself or have you found yourself changing rules while writing the rule book? Cause mm. that's, that's something I think I I'm thinking back now, but I'm pretty sure like I was tweaking things slightly because I was like, okay, this is too complicated and it's taking up too much space. So I'm actually going to change the design just slightly on how like some of the different dice characteristics works because I'm going from like a paragraph to a sentence. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I I can't think of a specific instance that I've done that, but that's, I would, if you could go from a paragraph to a sentence and you think it will play functionally close enough to the same, that's a huge win. I did in Enchanted Plumes, the first time I wrote the rule book, I had point values associated with the size of different peacocks to really make it clear, finished peacocks, like a, a finished base two gets you three points, a finished base four right. gets you six points. It's just like a table. Yeah, yeah, a table. And then I realized, oh, I don't need, that makes it look complicated. It should just be what it is, which is you get one point for every card in a finished peacock. So that was like the closest example of trying yeah. to like take that complex idea and make it simple. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's yeah. so, that's, and that's a great example too because that's an an instance where like literally less is more yeah right yeah you're like taking take the idea in yeah yeah all right well brendan any other kind of like burning thoughts you've had on design process revelations advice for people dipping their toes in i feel like the biggest thing is just like play games enjoy them play your own games and try to enjoy them and if you don't change them so that you'll enjoy them don't get attached to a game get attached to learning and then everything will be great because no one game is like if you get attached to a game you're done you're done like if, if i was attached to games oh my gosh i would there's an anchor in my closet ready to take me down you know Oh, it's, like it's not like the point. The, There's too much weight there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. That's like me and my kickball game albatross. Yeah. <laughs> around my neck or whatever. Yeah. And I think you know we sort of started on this, and I think too like the origin of your design process is probably a really important one to be intentional about. Like mm. both knowing like what the outcome is you hope to achieve with the game in like as detailed as you can. Yeah. It's probably a good idea. Like I want this to be published by this publisher. Mm-hmm. It's such a better starting point than I want this to be published. Sure. Or, right. Or I, I want to make a great game. Yeah. You know, cause one of those things like you can create an action plan to 
Yeah. And one of those things you really can't. And then also like the starting point for me, like so, so differently shaped the design experience from like, I can design a game about whatever I want within these constraints. So like I'm adapting a game that exists into a board game, which I found by far the most challenging. Yeah. And like I'm, you know, designing a expansion or, or whatever to something that already exists. All those things like took me down like such different journeys and such different questions. I don't know. And I'm still like left left like reeling a little bit by the kickball one. And there's just something about like, this is a game that already has rules and like bringing in all that baggage of like what this should be like and preconceived notion about like how this game plays is like, to me, has just been, you know, almost an impossible ask. Sports games are hard for that reason. Adaptations are hard. Yeah, yeah, we kind of talked about a little bit of amongst people in my disc golf group about the merits of like a disc golf board game, mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of uh, board game designers who who hang out in that group, and uh, sort of, kind of one of the ideas we kind of kept coming back to is like, oh yeah, like a disc golf board game that plays in like 90 minutes. Well, like if I had 90 minutes, like I'll just go play disc golf if I want the disc golf yeah. experience. <laughs> So much of sports is about the joy of executing difficult tasks. And right. I think that that's so hard to translate to board games. It's not impossible, but it's tough. Yeah. You know, the ch- specific challenge I'm encountering with the kickball over and over is like what makes it interesting is like the rock, paper, scissors between offense uh, and defense of mm-hmm. like if you're bunting and I, I and I think you're bunting and I'm playing like third base then I start running at the ball before you've even kicked it. Yep. But if you instead kick it at me, I'm actually disadvantaged because I've committed to the bunt that my momentum is like taking me towards this thing that's now like rocketing really fast at me, mm-hmm. right? Or the outfielders are, if the outfielders are expecting you to do like a hard ground or a live drive, maybe they're anticipating in and then you kick it over their heads. Yep. That's bad for them. But if they're already dropping back, you know so i've wanted to include include that like rock paper scissors in it and that and when you're playing the game live it's so fun so natural and it just flows so well but when that means in the game like okay everybody's like stopping to think about like what they're going what kick they're gonna go for and like putting it face down and the defensive person's like picking what they're gonna do so you're like doing this like rock paper scissors that matters a lot overlaid on top of like a card game system it's like the flow is just so horrible that like even when it's like a functional game it's just like no this isn't this isn't kickball. This is like, it's like complicated rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> totally. And it feels differently than like it would. And what you're trying to capture is the feel of it. Not necessarily. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so tough. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, this was really lovely. I hope we get to talk about design more on the show in the future. If people like it, that's totally, this is a very different episode for us. If you want to hear us talk about this more, definitely please let us know because yeah, we're taking a little bit of a shot in the dark here. And if not, let us know that too. But thank you so much as always for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. All our links are in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, please, As always, we would love it if you'd leave us a review, join our Discord. And you can support us on Patreon. We actually had a couple new patrons uh, recently, one of which is Brendan's mom. Did we oh, talk? No. Did we say that already? We did say that. It's so bad. <laughs> we have to tell the story now. You just told it. 
Jake messaged me messaged me one morning and he's like, new Patreon, woo! And I just get this feeling. And it was my mom. I was like, Jake, <laughs> it's my mom. Which I, I shouldn't say it in that voice. Mom, thank you so much for supporting our show. It means the world. I love how supportive you are. But like, you have to understand. Well, it's like such a flex though, because like your mom is like such a super fan that she's supporting us on Patreon. I bet she gave us a five star review. My mom not supporting us on Patreon and gave us a one star review. They're so. kind of canceling each other out, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh We've got my gosh. the light side mom and the dark side mom. <laughs> We've got too far. Okay, okay. Let's go play some Rift Force. Have a good week, everyone. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.